Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that loves an apple cider donut, but isn't a big fan of cider. The shopping website, not the beverage. The beverage is amazing. I'm your host, Amanda, and this is episode 174. It's coming out a little later than usual this week, and that is because for the second time this summer, I got heat exhaustion this weekend. I On Saturday, I was just out you know, at a flea market doing some stuff outside, nothing too extreme, and I started to feel very sick in the evening, uh, nausea and a headache that escalated through Sunday, and I spent all day in bed when I would normally be working on close horse, and I knew what it was because it happened earlier this summer, and it's really, really scary. I think that my physical form is not engineered for Texas Texas climate, um, which I guess makes it really good news that we're going to be moving back to Pennsylvania later in the fall. It's all about us finding the right place for the right price and having the money to do it, but we're definitely planning on it. Um, we're looking at places right now, actually, and it's just about figuring out how to do the same move that we did two years ago when we moved to Austin in reverse with all the cats and the RV and all of our stuff and all of my weird books and my American Girl doll and all the fake fruit and all the other stuff. It is something I'm dreading, but I'm also really excited about. So our lease here ends in mid-November. Obviously, we'd like to be out by then, if not before. So we're just trying to figure all that out. And yeah, so hopefully this will be my last summer of more than 70 days of triple-digit temperatures because... Yeah, it's not for me. <laughs> you know what's weird is I my birthday is in August. I'm a Leo and I think we're supposed to like love summer. I don't know. Is that wishful thinking? Does this mean astrology is not real? I'm not really sure, but I love the fall. That's the best season, right? And we don't really get that here in Texas. So at least I know there are more falls in my future. Okay. Enough about me, enough about sweating and dehydration. This week, Zoe Edwards, the host of the podcast Check Your Thread, is back to talk to us about how we can sew more sustainably. We'll be talking about patterns, upcycling fabrics, Me Made May, and so much more. But before we get into that conversation, of course we have some other things to talk about, right? First off, a little bit of light housekeeping. I love when people say that even though housekeeping is like not very fun, right? This is just a touch, just a dash, just some light housekeeping. As a reminder, it is now officially secondhand September. Ding, 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 bow, 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 all the sound effects. And you can submit an audio essay about secondhand. I talked about it in last week's episode. So first off, I don't know why you would be listening to this week's episode without listening to last week's because it's like the first half of my conversation with Zoe, and you'd be confused. So you probably have done that already, but if not, you should go do that. Anyway, I give all the details in that episode about, about how to submit it, what it should be about, et cetera, et cetera. And I'll share all that information in the show notes again this week. Audio essays are due by September 10th. That's this upcoming Sunday. And I'm gonna start sharing them next week. I've already received some really good ones, but keep them coming. I love, I love hearing from all of you. Next, please check out the all-new, super fabulous CloseHorsePodcast.com. I meant to shout it out last week. Dustin, God, not Dustin Travis White. What doesn't he do? He also helped me because he is a UX designer and a very talented graphic designer. 
He helped me build a really exceptional clotheshorsepodcast.com that really conveys what clothes horse is. It has the look. It has a lot of my artificial fruit photography. I'm really, really excited about it. And to continue building it out, I feel like it doesn't look like any podcast website out there. And it specifically does not look like any podcast out there that is related to sustainability and slow fashion and ethics and all the other things we talk about. And I think that makes it really rad because it shows you how you can still be creative and unique and all of this and still be a part of what we're doing here. And in fact, all aesthetics, all people with all kinds of interests and motivations and things that get them excited are all invited to be a part of this, right? So go check out clotheshorsepodcast.com. If you haven't in a long time, you're in for a big surprise. It's so beautiful. And thank you as always. We'll thank him again at the end, as we always do. Thank you, Dustin Travis White, for helping us, meaning me, build this amazing website. Okay, lastly, this is a great time to remind you, I'm not sure if I've ever talked about it on here, I must have, of Small Biz Big Pick, the small business classes that I teach with Courtney of Sonic Wave Vintage. We launched a new model last month in an effort to make our expertise and education more financially accessible to more people. So the class used to be like $350 in that range for 10 sessions. They're all about two to three hours a piece. There's homework, there's workbooks, all that stuff. But that was a lot of money for people to put out there all at once. And we couldn't do things like Afterpay or Klarna because it's not for actual stuff. It's for an experience, I guess. And you can't you can't take Afterpay for that. Bummer, I know. Not that I'm a fan of Afterpay anyway, but it would have made it more accessible to more people. Um, so now for $25 a month, you get three sessions of education with us. The first class is always something from the Small Biz Big Pick curriculum. The second class is real life examples and other discussion around the first class. And then the third class is where we talk about other things, you questions you bring to the table, best practices you have to share. And it's just about sharing information and spending time together. Uh, so you get, yeah, you get all those hours of time with us and you get to meet all kinds of other rad small businesses. There is no business that is too small to be a part of it, even if it doesn't exist yet. This will help you figure it out. If you sign up now at smallbizbigpick.com, I'll share that in the show notes, you won't miss anything in September because the first session is on 912. And you can pay an extra $10 to watch all of the videos from August and get all the workbooks and everything else we've used. All of the classes are always recorded for you to watch again and again. And you get cool things like workbooks and spreadsheets from me. You get to spend time with all kinds of really awesome people and meet people from all over the world. We are totally an international situation now, which is awesome. So go check it out. You know, we started Small Biz Big Pick because both of us independently were receiving a lot of requests for like free business coaching advice, that kind of thing. And in an ideal world, like maybe I inherited a bunch of money and I don't need to like work anymore for in order to like, you know, pay my rent and, you know, my medical bills and stuff like that. I would 100% offer free business coaching to everyone, except so many people ask me that I would never get to sleep or eat or take a shower or do anything else. So it's just not workable anyway. And so when we, when Courtney and I met and we talked about it, we were like, oh my God, this is a way we could reach more people and help more people. And it could be 
emotionally sustainable for us. So please go check it out if that's something that you've been looking for. Let's take a moment to thank this week's episode sponsor, a brand that I love and feel very honored to have supporting the show. Seriously, what a pat on my back. Oseduro is a sustainable fashion brand based in Ghana that uses handmade textile techniques to create contemporary garments. All products are hand-dyed and sewn in Ghana with small-scale artisans and manufacturers to support the local apparel industry. This is a really big deal to me because as we've all learned in our series with the Aura Foundation, fast fashion has had an extremely negative impact on the local textile industry in Ghana. So what Oseduro is doing is really important to me. And their clothing is colorful with bold prints and it's size inclusive with many styles offered in sizes extra small to 4X. They are also conscious of waste and they're always developing more programs to tackle textile waste. Plus, they collaborate with artists, designers, and other brands to bring unique and limited edition pieces. Furthermore, this is very important to me too, this is a brand that cares for its workers, priding themselves on taking full-time pay for a four-day work week. The staff enjoys three weeks of annual paid leave, 90 days of full-pay maternity leave, two weeks of full-pay paternity leave, full health insurance coverage, pensions, and other statutory benefits. This is unheard of in the fashion industry. You can learn more and check out all of their incredibly unique and wearable pieces. They're all going to become the best things you've ever bought and you're going to wear them the rest of your life. You can find them at oseduro.com. You can find them on Instagram at oseduro. And guess what? Oseduro has a special offer just for Close Horse listeners. Use promo code CLOSEHORSE20 for 20% off your purchase. Once again, that's CLOSEHORSE20 for 20% off your purchase. And I'll share that in the show notes. Thank you again for your support. Top five things in the world of fast fashion and conversations about fast fashion that really grind my gears, that really just bug me, occasionally keep at me up at night, definitely make me seethe while I'm taking a shower. These are in no particular order of annoyingness because they all annoy me perhaps equally. Okay, number one, the fact that only brands in the sustainable fashion space, heavy air quotes there, they're meant to be ironic. The only brands in the sustainable fashion space that have the money to support slow fashion and sustainability content creators are, dun-dun-dun-dun, the brands that do the most greenwashing. And they aren't really sustainable in the first place, hence all the greenwashing. I'm looking at you all, birds, but you're not the only one. Ugh, bugs me so much sometimes. Okay, number two, the way that so many so-called heavy air quotes, again, sustainable brands like Parade bombard us with so much advertising, so many deals, and so many emails and capsule collections that, of course, they aren't sustainable, but they tell us so often that they are sustainable that we start to believe them, right? Every once in a while, I'll get like sucked up into some parade post and then I have to be like, wait a minute, these people make low quality polyester underwear and they partner with Coca-Cola. Get it in check, Amanda. 
parade is not it, right? Okay, number three on my list of things that really grind my gears in the fast fashion and conversations about fast fashion space. Ready? So many people forget that Amazon is a massive player in the world of fast fashion, especially now that it is the biggest clothing retailer in the United States. That means they are selling so much clothing that is rife with quality issues and fit issues and issues around ethical manufacturing, right? So many issues here. Somehow they fly under the radar as this big clothing retailer. I just don't think the average person thinks of it, but they're selling more clothes than anyone else. And that platform is full of flagrant knockoffs, photos literally stolen from the original brands who made the original product that's being stolen, messed up sizing, bad fabrics, low quality, and super disappointing products that do not look like the photos. And yet, People forget about that, right? Like, I think so many fast fashion brands, so many bad practices are really being, I don't know, like, out overshadowed by Shein at this point that everybody forgets about everyone else under underneath there who's also engaging this. In fact, that brings me to number four on my list, the way that so many fast fashion brands kind of fly below the radar because they aren't as big as H&M or Zara or Shein, yet they're all still part of billion-dollar companies doing all the same shady, unethical, wasteful things. We've got Anthropology, Free People, Urban Outfitters, American Eagle, Victoria's Secret, Old Navy, Express, Nordstrom Rack, TJ Maxx, Ross. I could do this all day. Kohl's, Target, you name it. They're all part of this, but they're kind of being drowned out by conversations around the really big players. In fact, I barely even see people talk about H&M anymore, right? It's like Shein is the headline at this point. We can't forget these things. Okay, number five, the final thing on my list. Aren't you glad I didn't do 10? Because this would go on for a really long time. When companies create a massive brand presence that intentionally disguises the true nature of their business. Anthropology and free people are great examples of fast fashion brands that wear an incredible disguise of artisanal, creative, premium, and even eco-friendly. But those brands are none of those things. They use the same fast fashion factories as everyone else. They steal designs from small brands just like the other fast fashion players. And yet customers place them so far above the traditional fast fashion brands like Zara, H&M, Boohoo, etc. They got away without ever paying for the orders they canceled in the early days of the pandemic. They ignored the entire pay-up campaign and their customers didn't care. They kept shopping there. They don't think that they're fast fashion, and they are. Nike is constantly voted as a brand most trusted by millennials and Zoomers, yet it's infamous for exploiting workers around the world. Links with forced labor in China. Yes, it even opposed legislation preventing the import of items made with Uyghur forced labor into the United States. Furthermore, Its shoes and apparel are primarily plastic. They're completely unrecyclable. They're shedding microplastics 
every day until they end up in the landfill for centuries where they will decompose and release horrible chemicals that leach into the water supply. You know the whole story, right? It does everything it can to avoid paying taxes in its home state of Oregon. Ask any Oregonian, they'll give you the tea. Yet people love, admire, and trust Nike. We see a similar branding effort with so-called vegan leather, once completely unappealing to customers when it was called man-made leather or artificial leather or even the zippy, this is a cute name, right? Pleather. But when it was rebranded as vegan leather, suddenly it was a more sustainable option. Spoiler, it's not. It was an eco-friendly option. Another spoiler, it's plastic, and its production involves a lot of fossil fuels and dangerous processes, or even a socially responsible option. Spoiler again, it's horrible for the planet and the people making it, and certainly the animals of the world, but the name vegan leather, it makes it sound so good, right? Branding works on us in so many ways. I just gave you some examples of brands and their branding and how people feel about them. And then even a thing, vegan leather, and how a rename became a rebrand and changed our image of it, right? Branding impacts our trust in brands. What will allow from them? If they ship slowly or ship us the wrong thing, we'll forgive and forget because the brand image kind of makes it seem like a blip, not that it's a bad business model or a bad company. It impacts, branding impacts how much we will pay for an item. If the branding seems kind of non-existent and cheap, think Timu, Walmart, the dollar store, We expect to get hot deals, the lowest pricing. If branding is fancy, if social media content is really aesthetic, if the stores are elaborate and experiential, we're fine with higher prices. Think anthropology and other stories, Aritzia. It's the same stuff, but it's wrapped in a different package and we feel differently about it and are willing to pay more money. Now, when I'm teaching students at Small Biz Big Pick, I always get things started by working with them to define their brand. And because these are small businesses, their brand and its values should be a reflection of them. In a world of small businesses, that personal connection is imperative, and it's what builds a loyal customer base. But it has to be authentic, right? Customers demand that, specifically from small businesses. But strangely, with with bigger brands, we expect less in terms of authenticity and consistency. In fact, we'll take some word salad from the company website and we'll run with it. That's enough for us. And maybe it's because we want to believe that things can be cheap, convenient, and ethical. But unfortunately... That's just not the case. If you've been listening to Close Force long enough, you know that our entire concept of price and value has been completely turned upside down by fast fashion. We no longer understand the true value of an article of clothing because we've been sold stuff for so long that could only be that cheap if one disregards quality, longevity, fit, 
and ethics. And the level of convenience that has been offered to us in the era of free, fast shipping, well, that can't be achieved without the same disregard for ethics. It just doesn't work. And we have to dismantle those expectations if we're ever going to save the planet and its people from the repercussions of ever escalating overconsumption. So let's talk more about the idea of branding and how it makes people kind of overlook the unsavory elements of a business. And let's look at it specifically through the lens of ultra-fast fashion brands. So a few weeks ago, I talked about Dolls Kill. It positions itself as a brand for outsiders, bad girls, rule breakers, yada, yada, yada. Interestingly enough, despite its outsider status, it still subscribes to all of the boring mainstream beliefs around beauty, you know, thinness, youth, etc. But it carries a lot of things you can't find anywhere else, really handpicked for its customer base. This, combined with marketing and social media, have given Dolls Kill a lot of brand loyalty and a pretty dialed-in brand aesthetic. The prices are higher than, say, Shein, but it's not wildly expensive, and it's always having some kind of wild sale anyway. As of today, it's 30% off site-wide, which was once the kind of deal you could only find on, say, Cyber Monday. So that says something about either the state of retail right now, you know, the brands are struggling, that deals have to be deeper to appeal to customers. There's definitely a bit of a Shein effect there, right? Or and maybe both, it reflects the state of Dolls Kill specifically right now. Here's the thing about Dolls Kill. The internet is full of stories of the brand stealing designs, of engaging in bad behavior, shitty customer service, low quality product, and now preventing customers from reselling their Dolls Kill clothes on secondhand platforms. You can hear all about it in the episode of Clothes Horse from like two weeks ago. And as I discussed in that coverage of Dolls Kill, former employees are saying that this bad behavior, the bad product, et cetera, are perhaps creating some cracks in the brand's image. Only time will tell. One last thing about Dolls Kill, its business model is what I would refer to as fast fashion 1.0, maybe 1.5. The trends come nonstop. There is certainly a steady stream of new products, new collabs, new reasons to shop, and it uses a constant array of sales and promos to keep the inventory moving out, making space for new stuff. All the hallmarks of fast fashion. Dolls Kill orders its inventory from vendors, receives it at a warehouse, and then ships it out to customers. That's the primary difference between Fast Fashion 1.0 and its new little but big and scary sibling, Fast Fashion 3.0. Dolls Kill has a lot of products on its site right now, including about three pages of new arrivals, but you could, if you really wanted to, see every item on the site in less than an hour of clicking and scrolling. It's it's not like infinite, right? This is Fast Fashion 1.0. If you're wondering what Fast Fashion 2.0 is, I would say it's Boohoo and Fashion Nova. These fast fashion brands that were able to churn out product even faster and cheaper than the original fast fashion brands like Forever 21, H&M, and Zara, while leveraging social media in a way that 
those brands, Forever 21 and Zara, for example, never could. But these brands still brought product into their warehouses before shipping to customers, which slowed down the process a a tiny bit. But Boohoo and all of its sister brands, Pretty Little Thing, The New Nasty Gal, Coast, Miss Pap, a couple more, they own their own factories, which makes stuff faster and cheaper than its competitors. But it's still not as fast as it could be. Although there was a time where I was like, how could anyone ever be faster than Zara? If you remember me talking about this in the past, I've hit on it a few times. Zara has so streamlined the process of production, so shortened the window between design to product hitting the stores that it does the finishing on the boats as the product crosses the Pacific Ocean, literally sewing on the labels, adding the tags, the poly bags, all those things on the boats rather than waiting for it all to happen before it leaves the factory. When I learned that, I thought Zara is going to win all all of fashion and shopping, and there's no way anyone could be faster. But there's still Fast Fashion 1.0. Maybe we'll give them a 1.5 too, because they've got these other things going on, right? Let's talk about Timu, which I discussed in last week's episode. Timu is straight up fast fashion 3.0, even though it sells more than just clothing and really all of the fast fashion brands sell more than just clothing at this point. I like to call it fast fashion, but we could also call it fast everything. We could say it's fast everything 3.0 if that makes you feel better. I'll probably keep saying fast fashion though. (laughs) Anyway, Timu, straight up fast fashion 3.0. And why? Because rather than receiving items in a warehouse and then shipping it off to customers, All items ship directly from the factory to the consumer. So depending on the size of a customer's order, they might receive three, five, 10, or more different packages. Timu doesn't buy or make anything. Fast Fashion 1.0, Fast Fashion 2.0, they actually buy and make the inventory. Timu does not. It's merely the marketplace for these factories to reach customers directly. And it seems unlikely that Timu does much in the way of product curation, right? They aren't trying to sell product stories or an aesthetic experience or anything like that. Their point of differentiation is they have the lowest prices and the widest offering of products. I scrolled their new arrivals page for five minutes today. I timed it and I never hit the end of it. Here's the thing. That virtually infinite assortment, the lowest prices, the constant deals, that is the core of Timu's branding. And much like how Nike's branding of good intentions, athletics, and what I call woke washing would make people forgive it for the bad things it does, the low prices and infinite assortment of Timu allow customers to forgive the company when something doesn't arrive or is super disappointing. Timu's branding actually moves customers to lower their expectations. Interesting, right? But it's not dissimilar to, say, shopping at the dollar store or Walmart or even from Amazon. You kind of expect that there is a trade-off for the super low prices. Fast fashion actually made us rethink a lot of our own expectations around the lifespan of the things we buy, and it made us more comfortable with things being not that great. Timu, Amazon, 
It allows us to lower those expectations even more and be okay with it. And it's all a function of the branding there, right? Which is cheap, easy, and lots of stuff. Now let's talk about Shein. Shein is obviously, you knew this, Fast Fashion 3.0. It has all of the hallmarks of 3.0. Virtually infinite assortment, constant newness, about 6,000 new styles every single day. It's got low, low prices, and it ships factory direct to customers. So once again, Shein is not receiving products from factories in their warehouse, then sending them out to customers. All items ship directly from the factories to the customers with Shein never taking possession of anything. They aren't buying things, they aren't holding inventory, and this this is what Fast Fashion 3.0 is, right? Shein's business model lands somewhere between Timu and Dolls Kill. Yes, it ships factory direct, but it does seem to be dictating what will sell on its platform. Timu does not. It's not just acting as a place where factories hawk their wares to overseas customers. It does seem to be doing some level of curation, ostensibly by using data and customer behavior to make those decisions. So it's not an anything goes situation like Timu. But if you need to come up with 6,000 new items every day, well, it does get perilously close to Anything goes, which includes a lot of stolen designs and art, disappointing quality, and, you know, repetition. But Shein has proven to be just as profitable as it is nefarious. Think about it. There are no expenses of warehouses, shipping, designers, production coordinators, buyers, QA checks, factory audits, and it never has to make an investment in inventory, so it never has to take the loss of marking things down when they don't sell, you know, like putting them on clearance. It doesn't buy anything. It just sort of facilitates shopping. And Shein's branding revolves around being the first and fastest with trends, the lowest prices, and once again, a nearly infinite assortment. This trifecta makes customers kind of forgive it when something doesn't fit or falls apart. That's sort of just to be expected, right? And part of doing business with Shein. So we all know by now that Shein is huge. It's experienced exponential growth every year, especially since 2020. Shein really wasn't doing anything that we hadn't already seen from Wish or AliExpress or all of the rando brands on Amazon and many other small factory direct platforms over the past few years who just kind of flew below the radar because they weren't as big as Shein. But Shein has been succeeding in a bigger way, primarily because it has been leveraging influencers and social media, especially TikTok. Yes, its brand was built on low prices, but it was also built on pandering to every single microtrend that popped up on social media, no matter how short-lived. Think cottagecore, dark at academia, coquettecore, barbiecore, perhaps someday a core core, which will just be a chef salad of every trend that has appeared over the last few years. Which one will be the ham? Which one will be the sliced cheese? I don't know, but perhaps we'll see it coming soon. But 
Shein had it all, while even the biggest fast fashion brands weren't able to react fast enough to offer product for these trends. Or maybe they were too big and too distanced from their customers to even know that this was what their customers really wanted. This is one of the ways in which Shein has been overtaking all the other fast fashion 1.0 brands. They no longer had their ear to the ground in the way that Shein did. They weren't mining social media for what people were starting to get into. They weren't anticipating what people were into before they even knew what they were into. These fast fashion brands, despite buying into every trend that was out there and competing to have stuff as fast as possible, they still weren't quite understanding what customers wanted, especially Gen Z customers, people who were really plugged into TikTok specifically, but also Instagram to a lesser degree. These same fast fashion brands, honestly, all the fast fashion 1.0 brands, it doesn't surprise me that they would miss the boat on social media now because I felt like even in the era of Tumblr, where all aesthetics came from Tumblr, Most brands were missing the boat then, too. The only one that seemed to possibly get it was Forever 21. Everybody else was missing it as well. They were looking too much to the runways, right? And then later to influencers. But really, they needed to be looking at what regular people were posting about and thinking about and getting inspired by. Shein did that. You know, there are rumors out there that they have an algorithm that just captures this data from the internet and turns it into product ideas. And I believe that the fast fashion 1.0 brands, they couldn't even dream of doing something like that. They feel so, they feel like dinosaurs at this point, which is funny because they made an entire industry turn into dinosaurs when they popped up, right? By mid-2021, every investor out there wanted to know what is the next Shein and how can I get on this train? Of course they did. Shein was just growing and growing. It was all anyone was talking about. Matthew Brennan, a China-based tech expert who has spent a lot of time researching and writing about Shein, told Business of Fashion in 2021, everyone in China has been looking at Shein and trying to dig out things to copy. All of the pieces of the puzzle to the business have already been out there, but no one has executed them as well as Shein. And that's true. It's like Shein wasn't doing anything wildly different. Like I said, AliExpress, Amazon Marketplace, Taobao, Wish, they'd all been doing it for years, but they never made it go viral. You know what I mean? Shein did that. The parent company of Princess Polly in 2021 which is another ultra-fast fashion brand, by the way, was looking for new brands to invest in that could be as fast and profitable as Shein because even Princess Polly with its super-fast fashion model wasn't even close to the level of profitability and speed that Shein has. Cup She, which is the Shein of swimwear, it primarily sells on Amazon, but now it sells direct on its own website as well. It received $15.4 million in investment from Vision Night Capital in 2021. Like this was the year everybody was like, how can we get in on Shein? And in September of that year, shopcider.com, known as Cider, which had launched the previous year in 2020, received $130 million in funding after surpassing a $1 million valuation. This is wild for a company that is like a year old and really unheard of, definitely made it a unicorn. 
which meant it attracted even more money. Cider checks a few boxes on my things that annoy me in the world of fast fashion list. For one, it's not as big as Shein, so it tends to be forgotten in conversations about ultra-fast fashion. It doesn't even have a Wikipedia entry, believe it or not. But Cider is the same model as Shein, just with much better branding. In fact, Cider is Fast Fashion 3.0. It ships factory direct, just like Shein. It works with the same factories and suppliers as all of the other factory direct websites like Shein, Timu, AliExpress, Taobao, and Amazon. It's the same product. And you shouldn't be surprised if you see the same items on all of these websites. In fact, these brands aren't copying products from one another. They're just working with the same factories. If you encounter something on, say, Etsy, and you wonder if it's just another drop shipping item, do a reverse Google image search. If you see it on Amazon or AliExpress or Timu, it is. Because these factories are selling on every platform they can find. As I mentioned in last week's episode, Shein has been trying to prevent factories from also selling on Timu, which has started a legal battle between the two companies. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out because if Shein starts sort of controlling the access to these factories, meaning like they become exclusive to Shein, this could be a disaster for Timu, for AliExpress, for people selling on Etsy and Amazon Marketplace, and even on cider because it is all the same factories and it's the same stuff. Remember how I said that Shein has some actual curation going on, unlike Timu, who's just like, whatever, you can put everything on here. Well, cider has even more curation and it doesn't have quite the massive offering. In fact, it kind of paints itself as a small business which is interesting because, once again, it was valued at more than $1 billion and it received $130 million in funding in 2021. It is not a small business, but it leans into that small business vibe. On its About Us page, it says, Cider was founded in 2020 by four friends who wanted to build a fashion brand that celebrates happiness in the mundane. Like the drink we're named after, Cider is bubbly, sweet, and has just the right amount of sass. And it promises, no gatekeeping here. We make clothes from extra, extra small to 4XL at an everyday price point available in more than 130 countries. It's a pretty appealing brand story, right? The About Us page goes on to tell us about the two founders who have great style and seem cool, how the company is based in LA. There isn't a ton of media coverage of Cider, I'll tell you that. But the little bit of writing I have found seems to call bullshit on the based in LA story. If you continue scrolling, you'll find out about the hashtag Cider Gang of influencers, followed by very appealing blog posts about Zodiac stuff and finding inspo from your local librarian's wardrobe, with a shout out to iconic 1995 film Party Girl. I mean, I was like, are they pandering to me right now? This is like hard to resist, right? The sustainability page is so much greenwashing nonsense that I can't even talk about it. Lots of hot air about recycled fabric and recycled packaging. It also trots out the same claim of sustainability that Shein likes to make, that it makes 
very little of each item unless it's successful, minimizing overproduction and waste, but it's still selling, like Shein, millions of garments every year. So is that sustainable? Of course not. Doesn't even begin to address who's making these clothes and the conditions they're working in, right? Probably because cider isn't making this stuff, right? It's coming factory direct, just like all of these other platforms. Cider curates its assortment by mood, you know, like grunge, elegant, nostalgic, sexy, cozy. You get the picture. And it has some really cute product photography on Instagram, as well as a lot of pictures of real people or at least influencers wearing their clothes. It feels fancier than Shein. It feels more, as we say in the biz, premium. And you know what that means? Customers will pay a little bit more, but not so much that they can't forgive quality or fit issues. It's a fine line you got to walk there if you're not going to be able to guarantee quality and fit. You can raise your prices a little bit, but let's not go wild. And cider's prices are a little higher than Shein, but still alarmingly low, like $30 for an embellished knit cardigan. Nope, that seems a little too cheap to be true, right? Because that's the thing. Shein, Timu, AliExpress, Wish, Cider, they are all the same thing, just with different branding, different customer experiences, and different Instagram feeds. In fact, I have this great quote from Connie Chan, a general partner at Andresen Horowitz, who led that big round of funding for Cider back in 2021. She told Business of Fashion, what sets Cider apart is that it looks like a direct-to-consumer brand on the outside, but operates like Shein on the inside. It uses software to have a tighter supply chain. Its technology is the secret sauce. And it's true that Cider, just like Shein, watches sales closely and removes something from the site after a few days if it doesn't sell. If it does sell, then it makes a lot more. The thing is, that's nothing new to Fast Fashion 3.0. That's something that goes back before even Fast Fashion 1.0. That is Retail 101. Make more if it works and expand it into a million different iterations until it stops working. Here's like getting down to brass tacks. Shein equals Timu equals AliExpress equals Taobao equals Wish equals rando brands on Amazon equals Cider. The stuff is made by the same factories and it is in fact the same stuff with different branding wrapped around it. I kept finding people being like, I think that Shein is knocking off Cider or I think that AliExpress is knocking off Cider. I think that Timu is knocking off Cider. And I'm here to tell you, none of them are knocking off each other. They're just using the same factories on their platform. They're not even buying from them, right? They're just offering the stuff. The same factories are just selling to, on all of these different channels to all of us. And yes, they're all stealing and copying from designers and small brands, but they're not stealing from one another, okay? That branding makes it confusing. You think, well, Cider is a little bit nicer. They must be the designer of this item, and it's Shein and Timu who are knocking them off. We think it's different, but it's, it's not. It's all the same. It's all coming from the same place. It's frustrating, right? So what does all of this mean? If we can say 
Shein equals Timu equals cider. Well, it means for one, that cider has the same issues with exploitation and forced labor within its supply chains that Shein and Timu have, because they're working with the same factories, and of course, they aren't auditing them. As I explained last week, the U.S. House is very concerned about forced labor involved in Shein and Timu's products. It's not mentioning cider, not because it's not facing the same challenges, but because it isn't as big, and who knows if they're even aware of it, right? It gets to fly under the radar because it's not as massive. And of course, you barely have to Google cider stolen designs to encounter example after example after example of designs and art being stolen from small brands, artists, and makers. It's the same old story. Fast Fashion 1.0 copied a lot, but Fast Fashion 3.0 ramped it up even more and gets away with it even more. This also means that cider is just as sustainable as Shein and Timu. It's the same model. It's the same thing. You know that meme format? This was in my mind over and over again as I was working on the research for this episode. You know that meme format that features Pam from The Office, and it says in the first panel, corporate needs you to find the differences in this picture and this picture. And then she says in the bottom panel, they're the same picture. That's all of these fast fashion 3.0 brands. It's the same model, the same factories, the same materials, the same bad things. It's scary. I read an interesting article from the Chinese blog Jing Daily called Don't Bother Looking for the Next Xi'an, and it gave me some hope that maybe, despite all of the investors still out there looking for the next Xi'an, that maybe the end of Fast Fashion 3.0 could be sooner than we expect. The writer, Avery Booker, seems to think that we are finding ourselves, and this includes Gen Z, on polarizing ends of fashion consumption. Those who prefer the ultra-fast, ultra-cheap offerings of Fast Fashion 3.0, and those on the other end who are thinking about ethics, sustainability, and secondhand. There is no longer a middle ground. He thinks that this will eventually lead to the end of Fast Fashion 3.0 as Gen Z makes more money, although... I can't hold my breath on that because wages continue to stagnate. Cost of living just keeps increasing. Here in the United States, we still have not, and we're not even close to solving the issues with student loan debt and healthcare, right? He writes, as their incomes rise, so will Gen Z's demand for higher end, higher quality products, meaning the current love affair with ultra fast fashion may well be outpaced by their rising interest in less environmentally damaging forms of apparel and accessories, whether that comes in the form of demand for vintage and archive pieces, sustainable and plant-based materials, or simply greater transparency on a brand's environmental impact. If the likes of Shein or Boohoo don't think ahead, their current boom may turn to a bust before the decade is up. That'd be great, right? I would love to see that happen. But once again, I just don't know. Because 10 years ago, even five years ago, we couldn't imagine clothing being cheaper and faster and more plentiful. And if you had told me that shopping directly from factories in China would be easy and convenient and entirely mainstream, I would have had a hard time believing you. So I do worry what fast fashion 4.0 could look like and how it could impact our world. 
Next week's episode of Close Horse will be all about fast fashion 3.0 and the other brands thriving on this landscape, how it grew to be so big since 2020, its impact, and what we should know, and of course, tell others. So please stay tuned for that. It's just going to be a solo episode with me walking us through all of these things. In the meantime, I would love to hear from all of you as I write that episode. Tell me your thoughts and experiences with Fast Fashion 3.0. Do you buy it? Why or why not? What is the product like? Do you wear it for a long time? Does it fit well? Are you happy with it? Or if you used to shop from Shein and its peers, but you stopped, tell me why. You can send me an email at amanda at world. Or you can record a voice memo on your phone or computer and email it to me. Please, no Instagram DMs. I'm looking forward to hearing from all of you and your experiences with all of this. I've never bought from any of these platforms. So I want to know what it's like and how you feel about it. Making your own clothes can give you the freedom to wear exactly what you want. But learning to make your own sewing patterns based on your measurements is truly a liberating experience. The Soft Work Garment Design course is here to help you do just that. The course is taught by Christy Johnson, who has been studying how clothes are made for over 20 years. While working as a fashion designer, she began to realize that modern clothes were not just overcomplicated in sewing, but also extremely wasteful. When she looked more closely at her favorite vintage pieces from around the world, she noticed a trend. They were all made from rectangles that easily locked into one another. This not only made them less wasteful, but they were also easier to sew. She took these skills and created a clothing design and pattern making framework that she's taught to hundreds of students from beginners to advanced sewists. Software course is not about a specific skill or finished product. It's a way of making clothes using easy to learn skills that will set you up for knowing how to design, pattern, and customize garments using your own measurements, not some mythical inconsistent sizing. We know all about that, right? The pre-recorded format of the software course means you can take the course at your own pace, while the live Q&A sessions ensure that you have help when you hit roadblocks. Oh, and you have lifetime access to the course, so you can refer back to the materials at any time. Enrollment closes on September 22nd, so be sure to sign up by visiting softworkcourse.com. Okay, with all of that ultra-fast fashion, a fast fashion 3.0 talk, we definitely need a little change of direction, a little refreshment here. So let's talk about something way more fun, sustainable sewing with Zoe. Let's jump right in. Okay, so that's a great transition to like, let's talk about this somewhat misconception. I'll say it's not a full misconception, but it's partial that sewing your clothing is always the most sustainable option. Mm. Yes, we do have to unpack this. Okay, so we could argue that it is in some ways and not in others. Um, where do you want to go first? <laughs> well, let's okay, let's start with the easy part. Why can it be? Okay, I would argue that it could be more sustainable if, so there's lots of ifs, this is the thing. If you're <laughs> making a garment that 
So for me, the formula of a sewing more sustainably is if you're making things that fit your personal taste, fit your lifestyle and fit your body so well that you get lots and lots of wear from it. Like clothes don't last forever. Like it's not going to last forever, ever. But to get years worth of use, um, I think is just the, 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 the kind of like the goal if you want to sew more sustainably. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So if you get to a point where you, so I think like, I mean, you can automatically, I think we were talking before, like you have to make lots of personal decisions to get that garment into the world. You know, yeah. you have to choose the color, the fabric, the, you know, the buttons, what have you. So putting your own personal style into a garment can help. Um, sorry, isn't necessarily too tricky. However, like, you can really make sure that you are making something by developing your own kind of personal knowledge about yourself and your style, you know? So I think that one way that I think is a really good way to do it. If, if you kind of, you, you kind of know what you like, but you can't really put your finger on it, you know, is I like, I quite like using Pinterest for that, you know, and Mm -hmm collating like you know just collecting lots of things that appeal to me and then looking back and then you can see themes in them you know like oh I really like things with ruffles or (laughs) I really like those kind of poofy sleeves or I really like kind of culottes and you know then you can really kind of literally translate your own style into making clothes that that you're gonna be like yes I love that I can't wait to wear that again um and then your own personal lifestyle is something that definitely needs to be considered you know like what do you actually spend most of your day doing you know like you if you have young kids or you work outside or you know or you work from home like you don't want a lot of you probably don't want a lot of tight fitting dresses or you know like kind of fit and flare dresses necessarily you know if you're a gardener I mean but if you've if you've got the kind of lifestyle where you then go out, maybe you do want a couple, but you don't need a wardrobe full. So it's just being a bit more aware of of, of what you need in your lifestyle. Also, what kind of climate you live in as well, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, are you the kind of person that always feels cold or always feels hot? There's often ways that you can interpret certain elements of a garment to make it more adaptable for your lifestyle. Like, for example, like if you like dresses or blouses with big poofy sleeves but you work in childcare or something you know maybe you could make like a sweatshirt with big poofy sleeves or a, <laughs> do you know what I mean there's there's ways that you can adapt certain trends or certain styles or certain elements right right so I think that's really important um and the probably the trickiest but something that um is really worth trying to do is fitting your own body and getting to know your body what changes you need to make to a pattern or a garment to to actually get it to fit you well because when garments don't fit you well you don't wear them you know you just you pass over them when you're getting dressed you know yeah so yeah. I think that that is a super important one. And that is a big challenge. I just did a couple of episodes with a lovely woman called Kate Roberts, actually, about kind of refining the fit of our clothes, because it is something that a lot of sewers kind of probably don't spend as much time considering and, and as much time actually doing as as they should. So that's another element. Um, also, so yeah, so that's that's how I would argue if if you are able to make clothing that fits all those criteria and then you wear it lots and lots um, for a number of years, then that, you could argue, is more sustainable. 
than right. shop or clothing. Because also you've got your own, yeah, you've got a connection with it that's probably deeper than than shop or clothing, I'd, I'd say, probably, unless it was given to you by I somebody special. I would hope special. so, after all that time, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, I'm not really selling it, and I'm making it sound exhausting, make your own <laughs> Okay, so let's talk about how it cannot be, right? Mm. Because I think, you know, like one thing I see, and I do think this is, you know, content creators got to create content. I get it. (laughs) But I see people out there who are sewing multiple new garments every Mm -hmm. week and posting about it. And I think it does plant this little seed in our brains that makes us think we should have, once again, new clothes every week. And if we sew them ourselves, it's fine. It's like it never happened. You know? Yeah, well, I mean, it's still fabric, you know, it's still fabric that has been produced in the same way as the fabric that is in a shop-bought garment, you know, it's still that the fibers have been derived from the same way, it's been processed in the same way, it's probably traveled around the world, you know, multiple times, Um, just because you're doing the bit where you kind of cut it out and stitch it yourself, you're still responsible, (laughs) you know, for the resources um, that went into that fabric and the waste that, because I mean, fabric production is incredibly wasteful and damaging industry in and of itself like no matter what fiber we're talking about like it has a negative environmental impact like it's not even like fabrics that are like organic cotton or linen we're we're told that they are a sustainable fabric there's no such thing as a sustainable fabric that is a virgin fabric in my opinion you know like Everything has had to be processed. Everything has used energy. Everything has used labor and time, you know? Um, mm-hmm. So even the most the most sustainable of fabrics, I would say, is not sustainable in and of itself. I think there's very few things that could argue are in and of itself sustainable, only more sustainable. But um, yeah, so there's that. And also you could argue that home sewing is less resource you know it actually uses more resources in that when garments are made you know mass production obviously they want to waste as little as possible Mm -hmm. of the fabric because it costs them money I think the average is generally in a lay plan you lose 15% I believe in Mm -hmm. on average in a lay plan and that is like people whose whole jobs is specifically to create the tightest cleverest least wasteful lay plan like that's you know as you know Mm -hmm. know, that's some whole job so uh, those of us who are then making our own clothes at home there's no way we can I mean when you scale anything up it you know it it Mm -hmm. in generally like you would use less per unit um and when so when you're making one single garment at home you're probably going to be wasting I'd say more than 15% I keep meaning to do the thing where like you weigh your fabric before and then cut out a garment and then weigh it after and see what you've got left oh that's such a good idea I I I always forget (laughs) it might like put it in perspective more for people Mm. because I do think like you I mean you nailed it like there's software that literally helps people ensure like ma- in mass production mm. how to like, get waste the least amount of fabric because yeah. if you are making 10,000 units of something and 15% of that fabric is wasted being cut out whoo Mm. That is a lot of money, right? We're yeah. talking like bolts that of fabric that have to be delivered by a truck because they're so huge. And yeah. now you're now you're cut wasting fifteen percent of that. We're, yeah, it's, it's wild, it's, isn't it? It, it? Right. And I think that we tend to forget that if we're sewing new clothes every week, we're getting close to that truck full of fabric way faster than you might think. Yeah, and, and it's hard waste. to envision it. You know, it's hard to envision that waste because you look at it after you cut 
you cut something out and you're like, oh, it's just all these like random pieces. It's not much, right? It's just Mm. some scraps. Um, But it adds up over time the more you sew. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So Uh, there's that. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. And I think that's a really good call. Also, we're not going to go into it now, but I went down a very depressing rabbit hole this weekend, just reading more about fabrics and fabric treatments and dyes and the impact, the environmental impact. And I would say that for every garment that we wear, whether we bought it like at a store or we made it ourselves out of fab- new fabric we bought, mm-hmm. the fabric is definitely by far the part of the garment that has the most environmental impact, mm. uses the most water and creates the most waste. Yeah. It's yeah. devastating. Yeah. And there's that yeah. there's that new book that's just come out, isn't there, about the the toxic chemicals and yeah. coatings and which is utterly shocking. Um and it's terrifying. And I mean, there was, oh, I was reading an article about the, in the Guardian about it, about how a lot of the airline, uh, airlines have got these new uniforms, haven't they, that are so covered in like fire retardant, crease resistant, stain resistant coatings that they're actually making their, their employees sick because of the constant uh, contact with these chemicals, isn't there? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I have gotten rashes from clothing I've worn in the past and laughed it off as like, oh, it must be that my skin's too dry or I use the wrong soap. Oh, God, blaming your body. Isn't that a typical thing to do? right. So typical. I'm just too sensitive, right? Yeah, it's my skin that's the problem, not this evil fabric. Exactly. Exactly. And I'm sure anybody... There are so many people have had similar experiences and just was like, oh, it's I'm the problem. And, you know, Mm. the... The bad news is is that you're not the problem. I guess that's the good news. The bad news is that there's this much larger problem. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I think like the fabric is, we can't take it for granted. And no. that's that's the big piece of all of this when it comes to home sewing, I think. Mm. I would say, I guess you could argue that home sewing is could be more sustainable in that I think that generally speaking, I mean, just thinking about the fabrics that the the place that I work at, there are a lot more natural fibers that you could choose. So, mm-hmm. I mean, there are a lot of fabrics that obviously, I mean, I'm, I'm wearing right now, I'm wearing a jumpsuit that is made of denim and it's got some stretch in it because I wanted it to be comfortable. But, and I know that that, you know, that elastane that's in this is probably releasing microplastics every time that I wash it. Plus it's <laughs> one day not going to biodegrade. So I am feeling mm-hmm. a bit rubbish about that. But um, yeah, <laughs> I think there is a, there's a greater variety. I, mean, I think pretty much, I mean, I don't know what the percentage is actually. I did go to a Future Fabrics Expo that had this information, but I forgot now how many what percentage of fabrics that are available um in ready to wear are synthetic i i would argue i would be very surprised it's, do you know the fact do you know the, it's the statistic? 65 it's 65 percent that's but wild some people say that they actually okay and by some people i mean someone on linkedin who works in that industry so right. take it with a grain of salt 65 okay. has been like vetted but he was saying that he thinks it's actually at this point in like 2023, it's probably more like 75%. Oh, God. And that is because of all the blending. Yes. So, you know, you might, I mean, if you sew a lot, you know a lot about fabric, you've learned it over time. But, you know, the average consumer thinks they're buying a t-shirt and it's probably cotton, right? That's mm. what they think. Yeah. Um, but it's probably a blend at this point. Um, Absolutely. Of like a, at least a little bit of polyester, you know, same thing with a lot of denim and really uh, like the technology for making synthetic fabrics has 
I mean, it's it's just improved so much that, you know, unless you really, really look and mm. think about what the label means, yeah. you might think it's a natural fiber. Like yeah. they, it's, they, they, it wears a lot of disguises, right? Yeah. It doesn't feel uh, the same as how it used to in like the 70s, does it? Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, when I, when 2008 rolled around and suddenly everything we were selling at, at my job had to be even more profitable and we were in meetings, you know, saying like, oh, we'll swap the fabric, swap the fabric. I don't think I realized at that time that we were f- fully swapping into polyester or polyester right. blends at all um, because the fabric still was drapey and, yeah. you know, had this like look to it that felt organic, I guess. Mm, yeah. But, you know, that's 100% what we were doing. I just, in my mind, polyester was all the clothes I thrifted that were thick, that like double knit, mm. super stiff, yeah, smelly, yeah. you know, all of that. It's and this gonna was make like, you oh, sweat. Yeah. this is like sexy and like a little sheer, Slinky. you know, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. But it, it is. And I think... I think at least, you know, if you're a home sewer, you can have more autonomy over that. Although, mm. you know, I'm sure you've heard of Joanne Fabric, which is the big sewing yes, supply chain indeed. here. In the, in, yeah. Right. And I'll tell you, when I go in there, I get really depressed about the fabric that they have because yeah. most of it is synthetic. They have aisles and aisles of this horrible fleece that I just oh. wish go away. Yeah. And uh, really, for the most part... The, where most of the natural fibers are concentrated in the quilting section. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And they're not necessarily suitable for many different garment projects. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, it's it's a funny one, isn't it? It's taken, I mean, it's taken me a long time to to get a lot of knowledge on fabric through working at a fabric place, you know. And I think that there is still a lot of, inf- you know, a lot of knowledge that sewers don't have. In fact, I literally just released like last week, I made a, a document that like a, a downloadable resource, but called like introduction to garment fabrics. Cause I really wanted to help people understand, you know, what, what fibers are, you know, mm-hmm. what your choices are, what are the popular terms in, in, in a fabric shop and what they actually mean, you know? So yeah, it's something I think about a lot. And I do think there's a lot of education that needs to happen because also it's changing a lot as well. Like the Mm -hmm. amount of garment, sorry, the amount of fabric that's available for garment sewing has just, you know, the variety has just gone wild in the last like decade or two, you know? So so it's a lot to keep up. It's a lot to learn about. And um, Mm -hmm. yeah. I think I yeah. think we'll get there, especially if they buy my downloadable resource. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Buy the downloadable resource. Because, you know, every time I post about fabric, you know, people are like, whoa, I had no idea. And it's like, yeah, I mean, that's, once again, yeah, it's kind of you, get, design. you don't get told it, do you? It, there should be like, no. it should be in science at school. Like, you should literally spell out what all the d- different fabrics are, what, yeah, where they're from, what the impact is. and but Oh, absolutely. You know, I mean, once again, people don't look at something like fabric or clothing and think there's a lot of science involved. And actually, there's so much science involved in innovating on these fabrics and dyes and printing and, you know, go on yeah. and on and on. Uh, there, When people don't take clothing 
or textiles seriously and they kind of dismiss it as this vapid thing. I'm like, no, you have no idea mm. what a massive industry it is. Yeah, but it's a very mm- opaque industry as well, isn't yeah. it? Like there's, yeah. It's hard. It, it's hard to access the information, you know, even though, you know, you can buy some fabric and, and the fabric shop doesn't even know what mill it's necessarily come from, you know? No, no. Yeah, it's, it's very mysterious and under a shroud of secrecy, all of it, all of it. Mm. Let's take a moment to thank some of the incredible small businesses who keep Clothes Horse going via their generous Patreon support. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Gabriela Antonis is a visual artist, an upcycler, and a fashion designer. But Gabriella Antonis is also a feminist micro-business with radical ideals. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the world needs. If you find yourself in New Orleans, Louisiana, you may buy her ready-to-wear upcycle garments in person at the store Slow Down at 2855 Magazine Street. Slowdown Nola only sells vintage and slow fashion from local designers, and Gabriella's garments are guaranteed to be in stock in person, but they also have a website so you may support this woman-owned and run business from wherever you are. If you're interested in Gabriella making a one-of-a-kind garment for you, DM her on Instagram at slowfashiongabriella to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram at slowfashiongabriella. That's Gabriella with one L. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at salt hats. Gentle Vibes Vintage. 
We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage, creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at thumbprintdetroit. High Energy Vintage is a fun and funky vintage shop located in Somerville, Massachusetts, just a few minutes away from downtown Boston. They offer a highly curated selection of bright and colorful clothing and accessories from the 1940s to the 1990s for people of all genders. Husband and wife duo Wiley and Jessamy handpick each piece for quality and style with a focus on pieces that transcend trends and will find a home in your closet for many years to come. In addition to clothing, the shop also features a large selection of vintage vinyl and old school video games. Find them on Instagram at High Energy Vintage, online at HighEnergyVintage.com, and at markets in and around Boston. Vagabond Vintage DTLV is a vintage clothing, accessories, and decor reselling business based in downtown Las Vegas, Nevada. Not only do we sell in Las Vegas, but we're also located throughout resale markets in San Francisco, as well as at a curated boutique called Lux and Ivy located in Indianapolis, Indiana. Jessica, the founder and owner of Vagabond Vintage DTLV, recently opened the first IRL location located in the Arts District of downtown Las Vegas on August 5th. The shop has a strong emphasis on 60s and 70s garments, single-stitch tees, and dreamy loungewear. Follow them on Instagram at Vagabond Vintage DTLV and keep an eye out for their website coming fall of 2022. What are things that, you know, home sewists or sewists in general can do to make home sewing more sustainable, less wasteful? Oh, this is like my favorite question in the whole world. <laughs> Great. <laughs> okay. So I think, yeah, well, I think like going back to what I just said, really, like you're, I mean, have fun, enjoy yourself, you know, get all the pleasure that you get from sewing, like the meditative, you know, the meditative qualities, the, you know, the mental health benefits, the, the flow, the lack of screen time, all of that. But maybe your goal could be to make clothing that you are actually going to wear a lot and do that by making clothes that fit your personal style, fit your lifestyle mm -hmm. and fit your body. So that's what I would say to begin with. Um, I would also say, yeah, when a path sewing pattern um, says that you need, for example, two and a half meters to make this blouse, they have to make these lay plans that are very general. They often span a number of sizes and it's quite possible that the, also they have to be very general in the, because fabric comes in different widths and they can't make a, a mm -hmm. new lay plan for every single increment of fabric width that is available, you know? <laughs> so, I mean, take the lay plans with a pinch of salt. You could uh, create your own lay plan, for example, like you could literally, um, 
even before you buy the fabric, you could mark out on the table or, or on the floor and get your pieces and really kind of see if you can Tetris those pieces in a much tighter lay plan than the sewing pattern recommends. Mm-hmm. Um, or you could try, if you've already got a piece of fabric that's a bit smaller, see what you can get out of it as well. You might be surprised. Um, there's a new, uh, not a, I don't want to say new because they've been around for literally ever, but there is a, um, a rise in sewing patterns available for home sewing that are zero waste sewing patterns as well so that is super exciting it's a really really interesting it's kind of it really feels to me like how the indie sewing pattern community and 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 that world was about 10 years ago is kind of where zero waste sewing patterns are for home sewing right now like it's small it's navigatable. It's not overwhelming. There are, you know, there are a number of designers that you can investigate and check out their style. They each have different kind of approaches. They have different kind of looks. It's just really, really exciting. It feels like the new frontier in some ways for, for garment sewing. So I would suggest that people um, investigate some zero waste sewing patterns. I've got several episodes about that and I've spoke to a, a number of zero waste sewing pattern designers on my podcast. So that's a good place to start if you're interested and you want a little intro into that. So the good thing about zero waste sewing patterns is, um, so a zero waste sewing pattern is literally all the pieces tessellate perfectly either into a square Ooh. or a rectangle. So when you're cutting out your pattern and your shapes, you are not getting all those funny, weird shapes, you know, like <laughs> the negative space, you know, in between right. the pieces. It all tessellates perfectly. Um, and generally speaking, because of that, they actually take less fabric um, than the equivalent kind of regular sewing pattern would take for a similar type of garment, you know. Um, So that's super exciting. So I would really recommend people do that. And then generally, if there is some waste... Um, it tends to be like very usable, like rectangles or strips, you know, something that you could use to make other things much more easily than those weird little funny shapes. So that's super exciting. And I would definitely recommend to do that. Also, see your fabric scraps and leftovers, not necessarily as an annoying thing to put in the bin, <laughs> but as a potential resource in and of themselves. Like right. this is something that I'm obsessed with at the moment. Like I personally, for me, like I'm getting the most joy in my sewing at the moment by seeing what I can do, coming up with inventive, creative ways to use my scraps and leftovers. That's what's really lighting me up at the moment. There's so much inspiration out there. So you could literally, you know, start making smaller things, you know, such as accessories or, you know, bags or, you know, whatever or you could get into sort of like patchwork and quilt making what have you but for me what I'm really enjoying at the moment is piecing fabric scraps together in interesting and and inventive ways and then using that to create like bigger pieces of fabric you know Mm -hmm. and then making garments from that and it's it's um it's yeah it's scratch for me it's scratching a creative itch that I've I've kind of been missing for a while when you just kind of make a you know, you make a pattern out of a piece of fabric and that's lovely, but you've done it a lot. Like sometimes you want a new challenge and that's where I'm, <laughs> I'm getting my personal challenge from at the moment, you know. So I would definitely recommend seeing what you can get out of your your scraps and leftovers. You'll be amazed actually at how many even like garments and stuff you can get out of a meter or slightly less. 
Um, and so many people doing interesting ways of combining fabric at the moment. I would go on Instagram and look at hashtags like scrap buster or scrap busting or sewing leftovers or patchwork clothing and uh, seeing what, you know, seeing what other people are doing. You could get loads of ideas doing that. Um, and this one's not super exciting necessarily, depends what your take on it is, but a way to be incredibly sustainable is by using your sewing skills to mend and alter existing clothes. I think that mm -hmm. we, we definitely do not have a responsibility to do everybody's altering and everybody's mending. So I want to say that now, like you don't have to take on everyone's <laughs> unless not, you want yes. to. <laughs> but I mean I, I personally do believe that we do have a responsibility towards our own clothes and mending and repairing and altering if if necessary our own garments especially if we've got the skills and the equipment to hand you know so um, that can actually in and of itself be quite satisfying and creative depending on how you look at it you know mm -hmm. like there are I mean there's so many resources out there there's so many beautiful books so many amazing Instagram accounts to follow and, and what have you based you know and think of mending in terms of it's like a spectrum you know right from like completely invisible you never even knew it was broken kind of mending right up until you know like the loudest brightest visible mend that's just embracing the whole concept of keeping it alive for longer you know and the kind of everything in between you know so mm -hmm. you don't have to be like a sticking pat you know bright colored patches on anything plus also you don't have to necessarily try and make it super invisible like and also you might want to do different kinds of mends on different kinds of garments you know yeah like like that beautiful selkie dress you were talking about, it probably like a big visible mend wasn't suitable. That wouldn't have necessarily, you know, it wouldn't have honoured the design particularly well necessarily, mm -hmm. yeah, depending on yeah. your, your viewpoint. I mean, I definitely at first thought like, oh, this could be a visible mend. And then I was like, no, it can't be. Like it won't work, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but I, I, the way I look at mending too is like, you know, this is another one that sometimes people get really hung up on. Like, Oh, it needs to look like it's new again. And I think of it as like, now it's uniquely mine. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's that thing as well. It's like, we've got this idea that once a garment is made, be that by ourselves or by a shop, like that's it. You cannot touch mm -hmm. it again. And right. It gets busted, it goes in the bin. Like, no, like, <laughs> you, it's just fabric. Ultimately, it's fabric that has been stitched, but you can go back in and you can either mend it or rework it in some way, whether that's because there's something that is literally you don't like about it, like it's too long, the sleeves are too tight, blah, 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 or just mm -hmm. because you're bored with it, you know? That's okay too. Like, think about how you can rework it. Like, go on and, you know, go get some inspiration and, and see what you can do because if you're not wearing it it's kind of like you might as well <laughs> see what you can do you know and it yeah. could be it could be an exciting project personally for me like I don't love mending despite the fact that I wrote a whole book about it <laughs> but, <laughs> but for me I have this I have this whole like make one mend one kind of system going on so like if I make a garment I then mend a garment or alter a garment and I I kind of 
I mean, it doesn't always go that perfectly alternating. I might do like a load of mending, you know, one week or whatever. But I, I find that that's a good way to kind of keep me on top of my mending pile, you know, keeps things from sitting there forever. Plus also like sometimes it's it's really, it's quite satisfying to do a mend, you know, then especially mm-hmm. if it's one that hasn't taken you <laughs> three weeks, <laughs> like a silky dress. And then you've like got a load of clothes back in your wardrobe or back in your kid's wardrobe or something. Like there is a lot of satisfaction to be found in that. And if you can find that satisfaction, satisfaction and find that enjoyment that in and of itself is is something to celebrate and something to to enjoy you know yeah absolutely I think you know it's once again like we get addicted to shopping or even making new stuff because we I mean you know we science has proven it we get that hit of dopamine Mm. we we feel good you can get that kind of feeling from mending something Mm. um and being like wow I look at this, I saved it, you know, it really, it really can have like that same impact, even though it's completely different in terms of where it begins and where it ends. Absolutely. I mean, even if your mend just makes that garment last another few wears, it will have been worth it. You know, it do- you can't expect clothing to last forever because textiles do not last forever. But, you know, it's it's all worth it. It's it's worth it. And and there's fun to be had in it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I think that probably probably the last thing that I would say in terms of how you can sew more sustainably is be a bit more open-minded about the fabric source as well. Like we talked a bit about this before. So not only do you, is you know, going to a fabric shop for a, you know, a yardage of, of beautiful new fabric an option, but you could do that and also see what your local thrift store has got or mm-hmm. Let people, you know, there's, I mean, there's so many sources for kind of secondhand fabric. So there's, you know, like D-stash sales on Instagram or Etsy or eBay or um, buy nothing groups or, um, hang on, uh, like uh, you could organize or attend or organize a fabric swap, you know, or a sewing swap because, you know, you've probably got some pieces of fabric that you have got and you're not using and so have loads of other people, you know, so why not have a swap and, 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 uh, you know, and rehome some other people's fabric, get some stuff that you're excited about, offload some stuff that you're not excited about, you know? So, <laughs> and also if you're going to a thrift store, um, especially in the UK, I think because thrift stores tend to be, charity shops tend to be a bit smaller than the US. It's definitely rarer to find a charity shop that actually has any fabric, like sewing fabric in there. Mm -hmm. So, but be a bit more open-minded about what a source of fabric could be. Like have a look at the curtains, have a look at the linens, have a look at the bedding, blankets, throws, um, garments. Although I would say that when you're talking about all these things, maybe... This is a tricky one, and I'll be really interested to hear what you you think about this. Probably try and aim for the pieces that are maybe on the last chance sale or have been reduced, so people could use them at, as they're in their existing form still. You mm-hmm. know, if if yeah. they are. But what do you think? What are your thoughts on that? It's a complicated answer, right? Mm. <laughs> so I think, like, okay, first off, with clothing, something that I do not recommend people do, and I know. Uh, there are people who have very strong feelings on both sides of this. Uh, 
do not go to the store and buy large size garments and cut them up into tiny clothes. Okay. Definitely. Right. So like one, like if you're not that size, just stay out of that section, please. Or if you're a reseller, fine. But like, I don't, I'm not okay with that. And I'm seeing less of that. Fortunately, yes. I think the word has gotten out, but Agreed. definitely like a couple of years ago when we, people were starting to get into sewing, I would see that and I was just like, oh, you got, you got to stop doing that. Yeah. Um. So that's one. When it comes to like other like linens, textiles, it's like on one hand, yeah, you probably shouldn't buy a perfectly good blanket and cut it up and make it into something else ideally. But at the same time, like I don't know how it is. In the UK, but here the thrift stores keep stuff on the racks for such a short period of time. And then they're like, oh, it's out of here. And then it goes to, you know, like landfill or overseas. That I, part of me is like, if you see the perfect bed sheet to make something, I I guess go for it. Yeah. Um, But also, if it's like really nice and you think that like actually people might want this, maybe don't it there's no easy answer there yeah you know? it's really complicated isn't it right right because there's like that's another thing that i see so much of when i thrift here is so many sheets so many blankets so many curtains so many towels like yeah so much because people replace those things way too often yeah like honestly and they are things that are in perfectly good shape. You know, here, a lot of the thrift stores are so inundated with stuff that if something has like a little stain on it, they don't even put it out. Right. And those are the things that are the ideal for a sewing project, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. I know. I know. So it's like, it's really tough. And I don't want to discourage people from reusing those things because I know they have such a small chance of selling. Mm. I guess it's just like, Use your judgment and like take a pause and think about it. Yeah. Because I think that's where maybe things go awry when people are just like jamming it all into the cart. I think people go home with stuff that they end up never using for a project anyway also. Mm -hmm. And just really like taking that moment to say like, how am I going to use this? Is this really the best use of this? Um, I don't know. I mean – there's just so much. I can't believe yeah. it. Like, honestly, like, I don't really have a lot of interest in clo- buying new clothes at this point. So I rarely look at the clothes at the thrift stores, but I can see the racks are jammed. And I, like, might, you know, breeze through them just to see what people are donating, to see what's out there. But I spend a lot of time in the home textile section. <laughs> Do you? <laughs> and I just, like, like... For thrift stores that I visit pretty regularly, I can't believe how fast the turnover is there. And I know it's not because it's sold. I know it's because they pulled it and sent it away. Okay. That's good to know. I mean, it's not good to know, but (laughs) it's useful to know. There's no easy answer there. I mean, like with nothing that we talk about here, there really is. But I guess it's (laughs) just like... Just take that extra time to think about it before you buy it. Yeah. I was speaking to a wonderful woman called Judy Willamant Ross, who lives in, in New Zealand. And she, in her, she makes incredible stuff. And she's got a really kind of set sort of set of rules almost that she applies to her sourcing. And she only buy, tends to buy like very ubiquitous garments. Like she really likes men's trousers to work with, like kind of suiting mm-hmm. trousers. Um, or she'll get like men's work shirts. Um, but they'll, they're definitely not large size. They definitely have to have been like 
if there's like a, a last chance rail in her local op shop. And so she's got all these really kind of specific, um, yeah. And then she kind of uses the big bits and then she keeps the little bits and then she keeps the little bits. And then <laughs> she makes, she then literally pieces the tiny scraps together and makes these incredible like coats and dresses out of like pieced together tiny scraps of these fabrics. And it's just incredible, but it, it can be done. I think that, and I think that she is a perfect example of how if you sometimes put some restriction on what you're doing, it doesn't have to feel repressive or frustrating. Like it can feel like a fun challenge, you know, mm-hmm. that's something that I'm really exploring at the moment. Yeah. Just like this sense. I mean, I'm doing this chat. So I'm doing this challenge at the moment called last. So is standing. So it's, um, is, uh, it's, it's organized by a woman on Instagram called Miss Tashley. And it's, I think it's about its third or fourth year now, but it started on Valentine's Day and it goes for a year and a whole bunch of people signed up and you see how far you can get ideally throughout the whole year using only materials, sewing materials that you've already got. So not buying anything new for as long as possible. You can go down into the, there's like heavyweight, which is literally you just use your fabric and your patterns, your notions, your zips, buttons, everything you've already got. Um, and that's the heavyweight. And then, but you can go down to the lightweight division if you buy like zips or patterns, things like that, but you don't buy fabric. But so mm-hmm. I'm, I kind of signed up by accident, but I'm really enjoying it. I'm finding it so fulfilling and yeah, like an extra level of challenge on top of making stuff. It's like, yeah, like I've only got, I'm like, I'm really running low on elastic. So what can I, can I get some elastic from like something that my kids are no longer wearing or can I Mm -hmm. adapt something? So it's only got, you know, can I, I've recently adapted a pair of trousers. So it's only got elastic in the back, not in the full way around, you know, just things like that. And how can I, um, yeah, get the most from, from what I already have. And it's, and that sense of resourcefulness, I think is something that maybe Mm -hmm. we're kind of discouraged to, to do I think because it has this it's very anti-capitalist isn't it it's very anti-consumerist yeah to kind of make do find joy in that it's more like oh okay that's not enough let's go buy something new it's like no like let's see what we can do and Judy Willamette Ross is a, a brilliant example of how you can be supremely creative with restrictions and yeah that's really that's really exciting me a lot at the moment that kind of idea you know no, I think it's amazing. And I do find that these sorts, this sort of thinking uh, uh, and really it forces you to get creative, right? And this mm. is how we bring create like artistry and innovation mm. back Absolutely. into the realm of clothing as a whole, right? Because right now, if you were like, tomorrow, I'm going to do this whole change to my look. I'm trying out a whole new aesthetic. I'm, you know, you could go order a bunch of clothes right now and probably have them by tomorrow. But where, yeah. where is the creativity there? Where is the creative expression, the artistry? And that is what clothing began as. And that's mm. how fashion became what it was for so long. And then it turned into an industry that just makes a lot of stuff that doesn't make many of us very happy, right? Mm. Yeah. I get excited about that. I mean, I... I liken it to this job I had it was for a terrible company, evil fast fashion brand, for <laughs> sure. But one thing I did for them was develop visual displays. And we literally made everything that was on display in our store 
in our store in the back in a wood shop. And they were very stingy with the budget. They would say, right. hey, we'd like you to do work that would probably cost you $5,000 in materials, and we're going to give you $500. Right. And it would be like, oh, what are we going to do? And so we were constantly reusing materials, looking. I mean, like, there was there was a month where we were driving around back alleys looking for things that people had thrown away that we could I harvest into wood, you know? And I'm not saying, like, was it cool for the company? Is that company great? No. Do I think they no. do things in a super smart way? No. But we came up with so much cool stuff. And yeah. most importantly, we didn't waste anything. We took things that people were going to throw in the trash and turned them into beautiful displays. We reused fabric, wood. We got really into patchworking wood and leaning into the differences in the woods and their yeah. wear and like showcasing that. And it was really beautiful. And I also will just say, for me, working on those projects, it flipped a little switch in my brain that sort of made me even more creative. Yes. Like, I got used to thinking that way all the time about every aspect of my life, whether it was, like, yeah. how to use leftover food, you know, how to repair Absolutely. something around my house. And I feel like it was a very happy time for me. Interesting. Because you had a create, yeah, there was like a creative outlet in there. Yes. Yes. And it's like you I said, like, it. listen, sewing is challenging to go get a pattern, cut it out and sew it is still, it's escape. It's also like a lot of like brain work right there. But like, imagine if you could take it to that next level and make it your own unique creative expression. Yeah. Uh, that's what happens when you are resourceful. Yes. And this is, this is totally what's floating my boat at the moment. Exactly. It's like, yeah, finding people who are doing interesting, resourceful things, seeing what I can do. And yeah, it's so exciting. And I think that it's something, oh, it's tricky, isn't it? Because I think that when people's budgets are getting restricted, people are having to be more that, more resourceful. But I hope that people find joy in that, you know? I think you can, right? Like, listen, mm. struggling financially is is hard. And I've, done it more of my life than not. And I'm not advocating for that. But I have also seen how I have a different relationship with stuff mm. and how I have, I don't know, I have a lot of, I've been so much more resourceful because of it. Not that it's okay for people to live in poverty or anything like that. But when we restrict the flow of stuff in and out of our lives, yeah. it actually helps us build better relationships with the stuff that we have yes. and think about it in new ways. And that is what's really great about saying, like, I'm not going to go buy a bunch of new fabric. I'm not going to go buy a bunch of new clothes. Even if, you know, like, I'm sure you don't sew every, like, all of your kids' clothes and stuff because you would be sewing 24 hours a day. <laughs> yeah. but, but, like, you know, even shopping secondhand – it forces you to innovate and think differently Definitely. and more creatively. And that's what I like, too, about saying, like, okay, I need to make curtains for my office rather than just go. I could order curtains and have them probably in a few hours from Amazon. I'm going to go thrifting and see what's out there and what I can turn into curtains. Yes. It makes me happier with those curtains at the end of the day. And I think there is something about stimulating your brain in that way that leads to more fulfillment and happiness. 
Yes. And then if you've got a story attached to that thing as well then, haven't you? Like, you're right. like, oh, do you remember the way I went to that thing and I got that thing and I got that thing and then I thought, oh, it turned out it wasn't long enough so I added this other border and it looks really weird and it looks really cool. My friend thought it was amazing because they thought that I'd done it deliberately. <laughs> but, you know, there's a whole thing attached to that rather than like, oh, I went on Amazon and it arrived the next day. Right, right. If you're enjoying this episode, then this is a great time to remind you that my work here at Close Horse is made possible by the support of listeners like you, just like NPR, and these great small businesses. Please go give them your support. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. New Vintage is released every Thursday at wearstevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at wear underscore st. Dot evens. That's where St. Evans. Country Feedback is a mom and pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. Republica Unicornia Yarns. Handmade yarn and notions for the color obsessed. Made with love and some swearing in fabulous Atlanta, Georgia by head yarn wench Kathleen. Get ready for rainbows with a side of giving a damn. Republica Unicornia is all about making your own magic using small batch, responsibly sourced, hand-dyed yarns, and thoughtfully made notions. Slow fashion all the way down and discover the joy of creating your very own beautiful hand-knit, crocheted, or woven pieces. Find us on Instagram at republica underscore unicornia underscore yarns and at www.republicaunicornia.com. Picnicwear, a slow fashion brand ethically made by hand from vintage and dead stock materials, most notably vintage towels. 
Founder Danny has worked in the industry as a fashion designer for over 10 years, but started Picnic Wear in response to her dissatisfaction with the industry's shortcomings. Picnic Wear recently moved to rural North Carolina, where all their sewing and accessories are now designed and cut, but the majority of their sewing is done by skilled garment workers in New York City. Their customers take comfort in knowing that all their sewists are paid well above New York City minimum wage. Picnic Wear offers minimal waste and maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Cute Little Ruin is an online shop dedicated to providing quality vintage and secondhand clothing, vinyl, and home items in a wide range of styles and price points. If it's ethical and legal, we try to find a home for it. Vintage style with progressive values. Find us on Instagram at Cute Little Ruin. Is there a little bit of Italy in your soul? Are you an enthusiast of pre-loved decor and accessories? Bring vintage Italian style and history into your space with the pewter thimble. We source useful and beautiful things and mend them where needed. We also find gorgeous illustrations and make them print-worthy. Tarot cards, tea towels, and hand-picked treasures available to you from the comfort of your own home. Responsibly sourced from across Rome, lovingly renewed by fairly paid artists and artisans, with something for every budget. Discover more at thepewterthimble.com. Deco Denim is a startup based out of San Francisco, and it sells clothing and accessories that are sustainable, gender-fluid, size-inclusive, and high-quality, made to last for years to come. Deco Denim is trying to change the way you think about buying clothes. Founder Sarah Mattis wants to empower people to ask important questions like, where was this made? Was this garment made ethically? Is this fabric made of plastic? Can this garment be upcycled? And if not, can it be recycled? Sign up at decodenim.com to receive $20 off your first purchase. They promise not to spam you and send out no more than three emails a month, with two of them surrounding education or a personal note from the founder. Again, that's decodenim.com. Um, okay, so let's talk. You know, we're coming down the home stretch here. I wanted to talk about because <laughs> it's getting quite late now. <laughs> I know, I know. I wanted to talk about the Me Made May challenge, which yes. is your I don't know, invention. Would you call it an invention? I don't know um, your idea. My accidental invention, yes. <laughs> yeah, so I'm the creator and host of Me Made May, which um, is very different now to how it began. So I started it, I'm trying to think now, I think it was about 14 years ago when I was living in Barcelona. Um, when I was getting into, I was getting, so when I lived in Spain, um, what I did for money was I was doing English speaking childcare. So I would go and collect kids from the school, but I had all the day until I had to go and collect the school, collect the kids from school. So that's why I was doing loads and loads and loads of sewing. And I was starting to challenge myself to make different items, you know, like I was like, oh, could I make a coat? Or, oh, could I make some undies? Or could I make pajamas? And could I get, learn about how to use stretch fabric better? And so I was getting really into it and I'd created all these clothes. And one day I, just, for some reason, I think my flatmate had, my our flatmate had like a clothes rail in the hallway. He was always rearranging his room. So he'd put his and I just thought, oh, it would be interesting to see what my clothes would look like that I'd made. So I did that. I just thought, oh, it'd be fun. I'll take a photo of my blog or whatever. So I put all the clothes that I'd made on this rail. And I thought, oh, 
that kind of looks like a wardrobe. <laughs> and and that just kind of really got me thinking, like, yeah, like that looks like that looks suspiciously like a wardrobe. Like, oh, but yeah, I still wasn't quite trusting it as I wasn't trusting these pieces in the same way that I was trusting a shop a shop garment right. for some reason. Yeah, so I thought that's ridiculous. And at the same time, um, there was a, an artist, a Canadian artist called Nash, Natalie Pershwitz, and she had done a project called the Makeshift Project, where she has she was only wearing things that she'd made for a whole year, including shoes and and everything. Like she took it really from an art angle and was like making things out of wood and like had a real kind of distinctive kind of style that probably wouldn't blend in with a lot of people's lifestyles. But it was super interesting. I was absolutely fascinated by her project. Um, and that kind of just got me thinking, like, could could my clothes function like a wardrobe? So I set myself a challenge. And actually, the first challenge was called Me Made March. And for March that year, I decided to only wear things that I'd made myself, excluding, I think I excluded bras, tights, shoes, socks, but everything else Fair. I had to make myself. Yeah. So, so I did it and it was, it was, it was fun, but it was really cold. Like it was a really, <laughs> really cold month. And I only had two kind of warmish tops. So I was literally alternating them every day. Um, and oh I got my. a little bit frustrated by the, uh, cause also this was like a long time ago. There wasn't as many garment fabric. It wasn't the range of garment fabrics available. There certainly wasn't the range of like patterns available. Like if you wanted a sweatshirt pattern, you had to kind of draft it yourself or adapt it from a t-shirt or something there wasn't like oh I could have one of a hundred different sweatshirt patterns like it was it was a very different kind of scene at the time so I was kind of you know making do with what I had so yeah it was it was really eye-opening and I kind of thought okay well I've learned a lot I've learned a lot about my clothes about myself about my creativity um I'd like to do it again in a slightly warmer month when I could kind of like put more of my wardrobe to the test because I had a lot more um so I thought like okay right well let's try again in a couple of months let's do me made may and because I was blogging a lot at the time and it was kind of there was a lot of kind of online blogging um commenting and back and forth and reading each other's blogs and stuff I kind of put it out there like does anyone want to do something like this like with me like you could you don't have to do what I'm doing like everything apart from you know those exceptions you could maybe just do like one item a day or something like that and I thought oh maybe they'll just be like a couple of people want to do it and we can just kind of follow along with how and cheer each other along but it ended up being something like 70 or 80 that first me made may um which was really surprising. I got everyone to like sign up on my, you know, in the comments and stuff. So that was really exciting. And then, and then, uh, that was really fun and really illuminating. And I learned a lot about my stuff and then we did it again. And it actually took a couple of years for it to end up being just a thing that we did in May. I think there was like a self-stitched September in there or something Okay. I as think well. I feel like I remember that. Mm. <laughs> so, so yeah. So after a couple of years, it became like an annual thing that we did every May and people, so then it, Rather than um, saying, oh, you have to do this, you have to do that, people can set their own pledge. And this is still how it runs today. People can set their own pledge because everyone's different. Everyone has a different situation. Everyone has different goals. You know, some people might not want an entirely me-made wardrobe. And that is absolutely fine for all the reasons we've discussed today. Um 
So, yeah, you can set your own pledge. And so, for example, like one of my pledges one year was I was wearing, I was making a lot of like dresses and skirts. It was that kind of like rockabilly era, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but I wasn't really wearing them. And I was thinking like, well, this is a weird disconnect. Um can I kind of almost force myself to wear those skirts and dresses more often so that I can learn to incorporate them more into my life? So my pledge that year was like, wear all me made, but wear a skirt or dress four times a week or something like that. So you can kind of do whatever you want. It might be some people want to, you know, some people have to wear a uniform for work or something like that. So they might just be able to do it in the evenings or the weekends or, you know, whatever you want to do. Some people will include mended items or include, you know, I don't know, upcycled items or whatever you want. Like you you figure out what's going to be useful for you and you kind of set your pledge and, and then you do it. And, and that's kind of stayed the same throughout the last like 13 years but kind of what's changed I guess is the is the community aspect so it is a personal challenge that you do yourself mm-hmm. you don't have to you just certainly don't have to take photos you don't have to share it on Instagram you don't have to share it <laughs> anywhere you it's just about doing the challenge but lots of people do like to do that and that is a lovely aspect of it and it is a nice community feeling and it's nice to be able to cheer people along and you know receive encouragement yourself so people do enjoy that part um so it started out, you know, following each other's blogs and it got a bit, uh, you know, unwieldy because there were so many people signing up. So then we started like um, having a Flickr group, you know, every Oh, year. wow. Yeah. I know, going way back. We tried Facebook, but that didn't work out so well. So we had a Flickr group and that actually worked really well. And we did that for a few years and we'd have these fun little extra challenges. Like on a Friday, um, we would do something like... Uh, we'd include an item of food in our photo or it'd be like a shot of our hometown or we'd do something else as well, like a fun little way to connect with the other people that were were taking part and in, and in, in sharing, you know. So that was really fun. And then obviously the rise of Instagram as the kind of sphere of the online sewing community meant that Instagram became became kind of where it resides in terms of the community aspect of it now. So there's the hashtags. Um, but yeah, but the, once again, the thing about Instagram is it does tend to promote this idea that it's all about just showing off the latest things you've made rather than rediscovering your wardrobe, rediscovering your older things, getting to know your clothes better, finding new fun combinations, getting more use from what you already have. That kind of does get a little bit lost sometimes. And I've actually spent the last couple of years really, like I've made a couple of podcast episodes on it and stuff just to really emphasize that it's about improving your relationship with your handmade wardrobe rather than just showing off all the things that you've made, you know? <laughs> yeah, totally. Totally. And I think it is important to keep repeating that message because mm. I think, you know, like people are scrolling by so fast. They are just thinking it's all about like trying to sew as many new clothes as possible. Yeah. Uh, and that we just need to, I think it's like I was saying earlier, like we, we need to change something within ourselves that makes us feel, I mean, it's like an addiction, right? Yeah. Uh, and when we, do that together and support one another through that change and reiterate why we're doing this change, uh, it brings us closer together as humans too, which I think is another thing that I love, you know, for example, about the Soist community as it's like a community of people all over the world 
Yes. Who yes. have been and brought that was together. So fun. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And would never know one another in real life. Yes. I have uh, people that are legit some of my closest friends. I'm probably never going to meet them in real life, sadly. <laughs> uh, yeah, but, I, I feel that. I communicate yeah. them all the time and I worry about them and I wonder how they're getting on, you know? Right, right. I mean, well, I would say like the social media era and then also the way we've like formed community around these things that are important to us has really yeah. changed the nature of relationships and it's mm. not necessarily in a bad way i've definitely had people be like oh, i think it's so weird that some of your closest friends are like your internet friends and it's like why the feelings are the same yeah we talk all the time we're just as connected it's just where we are and i'm actually glad for it because i feel like i meet you know like i met you and i wouldn't just stumble upon you at the grocery store we Absolutely. live a continent apart yeah Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's the whole thing, is it, about our podcast. It gives us an, like a real privilege to get to talk to all these people who are doing really interesting things that we wouldn't have discovered them. We certainly wouldn't have had a chance to speak to them and pick their brains and learn. So, yeah, Absolutely. I'm all for it. To me, it's like my favorite part of the whole thing, even though I was yeah. complaining to you before we recorded about how some people are really mean. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. There's the there's the haters. Yeah, for sure. I, think, I wonder if I wonder if that's because you you're kind of doing something right. You know. Yeah, I think so. Right, and you know, I the first year that I was working on Clothes Horse, and people would come into the comment section on Instagram really hot, uh, and I mean that in a bad way. I uh, I was like flummoxed. I didn't right. know what to do, and I was like, I don't know how to talk to these people, and like they're so mad at me, and I don't even know them, and like what will I do? And you know, over time, I realized it's like when you hear or read or just come into contact with information that you didn't know. Mm. That throws what you think of the world just completely up in the air. Yes. Turns it upside down. Your you first feel really response, uncomfortable. You feel really uncomfortable, right? And you act, you maybe it doesn't bring out the best part of you. And, this, you know, some people shut down when they hear that kind of stuff. Some people like cover their ears and are like, la, la, la. And some people are like, I'm ready to fight. Yeah. Uh, and we all deal with it in different ways, right? But like, so it's like the coming and yelling at me on Instagram is just step one of the process and it's fine. <laughs> Oh, bless you. Yeah. It's such a shame that you end up being in that position though, because like you're doing such important work. And I think the fact that you are riling people up because you are unco uncovering truths that through your experience of working in fashion gives you a bit of an inside, you know, knowledge on, it's so important. So yeah, you just got to keep doing it. Ignore them. That's right. That's right. That's what I tell myself. Yeah. I, but I, I think I'm just like, I, and I'm sure the same for you through, you know, meeting all of these different people all over the world that I would have never met otherwise. I've also learned a lot about people as a whole and yeah. how we work and the way we deal with things emotionally and kind of what's happening under the covers every day as we're going through life. And I am really grateful for for that. You know, it's like changed yeah. me as a person and how how I deal with everything in my life outside of Close Horse. Um, all right. Well, this has been quite a conversation. Definitely going to be a two-parter <laughs> here. I can tell. Oh, um, really? Oh, fine. Yeah, but I think that's going to be great. Um, do you have any like final thoughts you would just, and if you don't, that's okay too. I know I'm like putting you on the spot, but perhaps you have like, if you want people to walk away with this in their minds when they okay. hit stop. Okay. Oh God. Hang on. Let me think. Um, <laughs> I'm just wondering.
wondering if we kind of like made something close sound like it's really difficult. Um, I mean, it's not easy, you know, and I do want people to understand that. Like, it's not like the the machine sews the clothes for you. Okay. Okay. I would, yeah, I would say then, um, everyone, everyone can do a bit of mending. You don't need Mm -hmm. a lot of equipment. You don't need a sewing machine. You don't need loads of time. You don't need loads of stuff. You can get a tiny little sewing, you know, just a little sewing kit, you know, the kind of thing you get free from a hotel, you know, something like that. Yeah. That like you bought in the convenience shop in in (laughs) Japan. Like start with that. And then as you then need something else, you know, maybe, oh, something's gone, you need a bit of elastic, go and buy the bit of elastic, or or I don't have the right thread color, go and buy that thread color, you know, like start small, just get little bits as and when your projects need them. There is so much information on YouTube, on people's blogs, you can get loads of amazing mending books in the library. You don't need to spend any money learning how to mend your clothes. There is so many resources out there. It won't take you long. It's not going to be perfect straight away. That absolutely doesn't matter. But I think everybody can start mending their own clothes a little bit. If it's something's a bit too daunting, fine. Take it to a professional alteration and repair expert. Absolutely. Don't start with trying to change the zip in your jeans. That's not the one. <laughs> no, but, that was one of my first sewing projects was how to replace a zipper. Do not recommend. Oh, yeah, don't start there. But, you know, <laughs> yes, mend that little rip in a seam. Yes, yeah. sew that button on. You can do that. And that garment is back in rotation, back in your wardrobe because you paid good money for it. And, and yeah, and you owe it to yourself as much as you owe it to those clothes. So I would start there. Yeah. I agree with that because I think it's a gateway. It's a gateway drug yes. to more sewing. Um, and it make, helps you build your conf- confidence. And also I think like we live in this culture where it's like, oh, if you're going to take on a new interest, a new hobby, learn something new, there's this like pressure to go out and buy all this stuff mm. to get started, including with yeah. sewing, right? And Absolutely. You don't need to do that. Let it no. happen gradually. Absolutely. Get, yeah, get the little sewing kit. And as and when you need something else, just go and get that. That's fine. It's not going to cost you loads of money. There's no point buying so much stuff that it's cost you more than buying the clothes again, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. But I definitely think, like, I mean, I've had friends who are like, I'm getting into sewing. And then they spend like $500 on all of, all of the top mm. of the line notions and whatnot and a storage Easy, thing for yeah. it. And this is how they get you when you walk in the door, right? They're like, oh, well, you'll also need this special organizer for everything. right (laughs) you know what I mean and so uh, yeah I think I love that just like you know start with something small there is like seriously even just replacing a button on a shirt is kind Mm -hmm. of one of the most satisfying feelings ever when you've done it yeah so good yeah totally well thank you so much Zoe (laughs) thank you this has been so fun Thank you again to Zoe for spending so much time with us. Please give her a follow and listen to Check Your Thread. Okay, I'm going to end this episode here because, one, it's getting so hot in my office. I don't think I can record anymore. I need to turn the AC back on. And also, I have to finish editing this before Dustin goes to band practice. So I am racing the clock. 
Thank you for listening to another episode of Close Horse, written, researched, edited, all the things by me, Amanda Lee McCarty. If you like what you're hearing, you know what I'm going to say. Leave a rating, maybe even a review on Apple Podcasts, but most importantly, tell all your friends. If you'd like to support my work financially, there are a lot of ways you can do that. You can take advantage of the Apple Podcast Premium subscription where you get access to all the archives. You could support my work via Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast. Or there are many other ways that you can find in the link in my Instagram bio. Thanks, as always, to my other half, Dustin Travis White. He builds the websites, he edits the episodes, he fixes the audio bloopers, and he composed our music. All right, I'll see you all next week. Bye.